This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Is there hope for people who are caught up in the sin of homosexuality? Of course there is. Uh, Two new movies are about to come out that challenge that notion, and it's really important for Christians to know the truth and to be able to respond biblically to what you may be seeing in coming weeks regarding the propaganda that you cannot leave the homosexual lifestyle. So we're going to talk about it today with author, conference speaker, and ordained pastoral counselor Joe Dallas. He will be offering a live webinar on June 3rd called Why Am I Gay? Why Can't I Change? at JoeDallas.com. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as well as these movies. Joe, so glad you could join us. How are you? Real good, thank you, and thank you for having me, Janet. You bet. Well, as I mentioned, there are these two movies coming out that are challenging the idea it's that it's either even possible or right to leave homosexuality, and one is called Pray Away. Can you tell people a little bit about that film and, and who's in it? This one sounds just awful. Yeah, it's uh, a personal pain to a lot of us, Janet, because this is a documentary which includes a number of people who used to be involved in ministries like mine and like many others today that uh, help people who want to overcome homosexuality. And these are folks who decided that uh, they were gay, that that was the way they were intended to be. And so now they are speaking out against ministries that do what they used to do. Uh, So in essence, what they're saying is not only is it impossible for a homosexual to repent of that behavior and live a healthy life, but it is also damaging to offer help to people who of their own free will say, hey, I'm gay, but I know this is not what God intended. What do I do with these feelings? How do I live a holy life? So it's really a a twofold error. The first is the error of saying that homosexuality squares with the Word of God, and the second is the error of saying that people who minister to repentant homosexuals are somehow doing harm. Well, that is the line that you hear all the time from the other side. They are constantly talking about irreversible damage that was done and trauma that was imposed and all of this sort of stuff. But in a way, the propaganda is evident just in the title of this movie because they're always trying to, you know, go against people who are trying to offer hope to people in homosexuality by saying, pray away the gay. You can't pray away the gay, except I don't know anybody who's ever said you can pray away the gay. (laughs) So that's a problem right there. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been in this kind of ministry for 33 years now, Janet, and I've yet to see anybody hang a shingle outside their door saying, pray away the gay two cents, come on in. Yeah, uh, It's kind of like the term conversion therapy, okay? Yeah. Google that term and you'll see a lot of references to it, but you won't see one minister, counselor, or ministry that says it does conversion therapy. So, You know, it's pretty much the old Orwellian principle. If you get to decide what the terms are, you control the debate. So if you get to decide what the meaning of words are, if you get to impose words on people, 
then if somebody believes that homosexuality is wrong, you can say they are a bigot. They don't just have a belief, they're bigoted. The same with if you minister to people who are repentant and want to turn away from homosexuality, you're not doing ministry, you're doing harm. Whoever controls the meaning of words, man, they got the power. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I thought it was interesting how The Hollywood Reporter referred to this movie as a sobering account of Christian intervention rooted in toxic homophobia. I mean, they they have to be as over the top as possible, but some of these people, I'm sure you know them and people who are listening will know some of these names. Randy Thomas, who used to be with Exodus International, John Polk, uh, Yvette Cantu, we know Julie Rogers, wasn't she the one who was doing ministry allegedly for people struggling with same-sex attraction at Wheaton College? She's going to be part of this That's movie. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, here's yeah, it the. Hurts. It, it does hurt, and you know, I go back to several years ago when I was, you know, talking with Alan Chambers, and that thing all kind of imploded. And people might not remember, but I remember very well, and I know you do too, Joe. The reason that Alan Chambers really brought down Exodus in the final analysis was because he was operating from a faulty theological premise, which was there's free grace and it's this antinomianism where you don't have to obey the Lord. And can you speak to that a little bit, that that when you get biblical doctrine wrong, it can lead you down a very bad path? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because really you're getting to the heart of the matter. I mean, we, we can talk about the error of a pro-gay theological viewpoint and so forth, but these are all symptoms of something broader. And uh, just as you said, that is an improper dividing of the word of truth. The hyper-grace theology, which uh, there are people who promote it officially, and there are people who promote it who don't even know they're promoting it, but it's basically the belief that, hey, God loves us all, and if you are in Christ, whatever you do, it doesn't really matter because you're still his kid, and you'll be forgiven no matter what, so it doesn't matter so much what you do with your body. You're still saved. You're still right with God. No problem. And when you have that kind of casual view towards the grace of God, you lose something essential, Janet. You lose, and it's essential because it's the beginning of all wisdom, and that is the fear of the Lord. Yes, yes. Now, look, nobody wallows in grace more than I do. Man, Joe Dallas is a grace wallower. I am crazy <laughs> about grace, Me and I, I don't get a breath for the next 10 minutes if I don't have the grace of God. Yep. So I'm the last guy that's going to disrespect the concept of grace. <laughs> but the goodness of God is meant to lead us to repent. I repented of homosexuality in 1984, not because I was scared of God, but because I recognized that God loved me and wanted more for me than what I had accepted, and that I had taken for granted His love. And so, like a prodigal, I went back to the Father and said, look, I'm not even worthy to to live in the house. Just put me in the barn, you know? Um, Because I recognized that grace called me to repentance. If you're exercising a grace that gives you permission to live however you want, you're really not recognizing the true grace of God. But I think that's where this kind of thinking starts. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken in churches, Janet, within the last few years, and after preaching on taking a grace and truth position on homosexuality, people come up to me and say, but God, doesn't God love us all? So what's your problem? 
as if to say that if you call something a sin, you're saying God doesn't love people. Hmm. That is a very distorted viewpoint of grace and of the love of God. Well, it is. And I think about Romans 2, 4, which says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I mean, that's true for every sinner. It's it, irregardless of the sin you're committing. Exactly. Now, let me be quick to say uh, that the criticisms that a lot of people have of the kind of ministry I do and many people do today, I won't call it conversion therapy because that's a mythical term, really. But ministry to repentant homosexuals, uh, I will be the first to say there are people who have done it improperly. Sure. And, uh, you you know, I I can tell you some horror stories of people I've known who did just uh, um, bizarre things in the name of ministry to homosexuals. But, hey, there is no form of counseling or treatment that you couldn't say that about. Yeah. I mean, people who were depressed used to get, you know, shock treatment or uh, people who had affect disorders were lobotomized or women who were hysterical were mutilated. I mean, there have been terrible things done in the name of treating different human problems. The problem is the way they were treated, not the fact they were treated. Yeah. So, yes, you can point to any form of treatment or ministry or therapy of any kind and you can find people who did it poorly. But that alone cannot negate the value of treating the issue. Now, for lesbians and gays who are just saying, hey, this is how I am, this is how I want to live, I feel comfortable with it, I say, God bless you, live your own life, you've got free will. We are there for people who come to us, like I came to a counselor back in 1984, saying, look, I am a believer, I want to submit my life, including my sexuality, to the will of God. Help me to do that because I have feelings that are very strong and I don't know what to do with them. Now, people in that population deserve ministry assistance and therapeutic help as much as any other people. Absolutely. Joe Dallas with us. We'll take a short break and come back on Janet Mefford today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. COVID-19 is creating a surge in unplanned pregnancies as American children in place. 
Meanwhile, preborn crisis lines are flooded and we have quadrupled our patients seeking abortions. Your help is needed now more than ever as clinics had to cancel spring fundraisers. Would you consider sponsoring an ultrasound to introduce moms to their preborn babies? When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn is able to send $100,000 to clinics if this goal is reached. You can help. Call 855-402-BABY now. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Once again, call 855-402-BABY or there's a banner to click at Chan. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Joe Dallas is joining me, wonderful author, conference speaker, and ordained pastoral counselor, founder of Genesis Counseling. He will be offering a live webinar on June 3rd called Why Am I Gay? Why Can't I Change? at joedallas.com. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But, Joe, I wanted to return to something you were saying about one of these two movies about to come out that are challenging the idea that you can even leave homosexuality behind. The one we were discussing was called Pray Away with some of these ex-Exodus people, and I know you, you know some of these people very well from your time at Exodus. But what I find interesting is you made a great point. You said, here we are talking about, you know, the the damage that's done by conversion therapy and nobody does conversion therapy. That's just a term that they like to throw around. But yet there have been all kinds of instances in which therapists in various situations have abused people or done things that were wrong. So that raises the point. How come we don't see more movies about therapists who do evil things to people or had done 50 years ago in, in the context of marriage counseling? Why isn't that a movie? Well, there's a $64,000 question. I mean, how many times? I'll give you an example, Janet. In California, there is a journal for California therapists called CAMP, the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists Journal. And in that journal, every month, there is a listing of licensed therapists who have been disciplined, usually for having sexual relations with clients or entering into dual relationships with clients. Oftentimes, even in marital counseling situations where a counselor is counseling a couple and winds up falling in love with and forming a relationship with one of of the members of that party. Now, that rightfully is discipline. But you know what, Janet? Nobody is saying, oh, marriage counseling is damaging. Nobody is saying, oh, personal counseling is damaging. Why? Because they make the distinction between the people who abuse their position as a counselor versus those who counsel responsibly. And the same is true of any form of ministry any form of counseling. Uh, You can point to pastors who have abused their position of trust, priests, school teachers, athletic coaches, and in all cases, we take the instances case by case and discipline the abuser, but we don't assume that everybody doing that type of work is abusing the people that they're serving. Excellent point. Excellent distinction. Now, the second movie that is coming out, I want to talk about this one because I I kind of know the person who's the subject of this movie. Sarah Cunningham is an LGBT activist. She has a homosexual son, and she's really on the rampage against the church. And Lifetime will be airing a movie about her life called How We Sleep at Night, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. But this woman is really angry, Joe. And I know she recently tweeted out some very shocking things. Can you tell Tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, uh, you, you pretty well described Sarah's uh, bio. She is a woman who used to identify as an evangelical Christian. Now, perhaps she still does. She was a Southern Baptist. 
She has a gay son. At one time, she believed homosexuality was a sin. She did what many people do. She decided that she had to choose between believing her son was committing a sin or loving her son. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says those two are exclusionary, is there? Right. But she decided there is. If I love my son, I can't call it a sin. Now, therefore, I must fight anybody who calls homosexuality a sin. So she did tweet not long ago that she hopes one of the results of this film coming out on Lifetime is that uh, the doors of evangelical churches that are not gay-affirming would be burned down to the ground. Amazing. So this is a case uh, where you've got, again, a common sort of uh, revising of the English language. You and I were saying earlier that uh, when people control the terms of the debate, they pretty much control the debate. So if people say that ministry to repentant homosexuals is conversion therapy, that's a sinister-sounding thing that sounds damaging to people— so it is also that people are now saying that conviction is prejudice. If you have a conviction that God created us male or female, and that the proper sexual union, as testified primarily by the Word of God, and secondarily, by the way, by anatomy itself, <laughs> is between a man and a woman, you no longer just hold the conviction, you are prejudiced. And not only are you prejudiced, you are dangerous. Why? Because we have decided that if you hold that position, you are doing damage to lesbians and gays. Why are you doing damage to them? Because it makes them uncomfortable to hear that. Now, to break that down a little, not all lesbians and gays are uncomfortable with the idea that Christians believe homosexuality is a sin. There are plenty of reasonable people who are homosexual who do not want to shut down freedom of speech and freedom of religion. But the current gay rights movement has adopted a belief of basically a position that any criticism of or disagreement with homosexuality, any belief that homosexuality falls short of God's will, must be eliminated. And uh, in that in that spirit of intolerance, you have films like this coming out, which basically paint the conservative church as the villain for holding a viewpoint which people are now saying is damaging. Right. Now, here's the kicker. It's, uh, you remember Josh McDowell wrote a book back in the early 70s called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. What we've got today is verdicts which demand some evidence. Yeah, right. We right. have been found guilty with no evidence, and it's reminiscent of the Salem Witch Trial. Sure. Where you've got 19 people murdered because a bunch of girls said, I saw Goody Proctor with the devil. And if enough girls say that at the same time, all of a sudden some People go, okay, well, we have to hang Goody Proctor. On what evidence? Well, everybody says they saw him with the devil and they're doing damage. That's what we've got today, Janet. There's a bunch of people saying these people are doing conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is damaging, and so they all have to be banned and silenced and criminalized, basically. Well, and the irony here, you know, Sarah Cunningham, I know, has done some, you know, activist work trying to oppose some of the events I've been involved with. For example, a movie showing that Stephen Black from First Stone Ministries was doing a couple of years ago, and Sarah Cunningham was rallying the troops, let's show up and, you know, counter the hate and all that, and just the nasty stuff they were saying online. But, you know, when you're talking about doing damage, and she tweets out that part of the reason they, they want to do this movie and the, the benefit of this movie is to burn the main 
mainstream evangelical conservative non-affirming church doors down to the ground. I, you know, I, I said to Stephen, well, why in the world isn't anybody talking to the FBI? Because that could be constructive. I mean, who's talking about doing damage here? Nobody. I know. It's crazy. And she's the one going around giving free mom hugs. That was how she kind of got in the vernacular of people oh, oh, with the LGBT activism. She goes around, just hugs people while she talks about burning non-affirming churches to the ground. Lovely. Yeah, I mean, this is the classic, uh, it's the Orwellian brilliance, that sort of doublespeak he described in 1984 and also showed in Animal Farm. Uh, directly from Animal Farm, you've got the quote, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So that's basically what we've got going here. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, I'm excited about your webinar. I know a lot of people benefit from what you do online, Joe. Tell us a little bit about this June 3rd webinar, Why Am I Gay? Why Can't I Change? And what that's going to be all about. Well, at the risk of sounding like a Hallmark greeting card, it is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. I'm good at cursing the darkness. I get mad like anybody else. But I had to ask myself, so what are we supposed to do? Just rail against all these people or speak proactively? Because, look, there there are, there have always been, and there always will be people who will say, okay, I get it. A lot of people think gay is fine, but... I am attracted to the same sex. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple and a follower. I will not yield to these attractions, but what do I do about them? And they come to the church and they ask two questions. Why am I gay? What caused this? Do I have a demon? Is it my fault? Was it a choice? Was it faulty parenting? Why am I the way I am? And I've asked God to take the feelings away. I've tried to make myself stop feeling this way. Why can't I change? What do I do about it? Those are two of the commonest questions. That, that people struggling with the same sex have when they come into our churches. I wanted to set up a webinar where we could talk about how you answer those two questions. They are reasonable questions, and the people who ask them have the right to an answer. So I want to equip people to be able to have a dialogue with someone who is either openly lesbian and gay or someone who is repentant, like I was back in 1984, saying, I want to change, but how do I start? Yeah. And I want to help people better understand what does Scripture say about the origins of homosexuality and what does Scripture say about the concept of change, this idea of people, as Paul described in First Corinthians 6, people who were involved in many behaviors, including homosexuality. He said people who engage in those behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he turned around and said, and such were, Pastor Tim, some of you, meaning that even in the early church, there were people who said, this is the way I feel, this is what I've been doing, but I'm repentant, what do I do now? Yeah. And so in the tradition of Paul's saying, but now you're washed, justified, you're sanctified, I wanted to offer a live webinar that will equip believers to be able to discuss this with people who are directly impacted by homosexuality. And I'm hoping as a result, we as believers will be better equipped to reason with people who are attracted to the same sex and to disciple them to offer them truth and to walk alongside them, whether we are ministers or laity, I think to be relevant, it's not going to be enough to just say this is a sin, although we have to say that. Uh, we also have to be equipped to walk alongside people who say, okay, I agree with you. Now help me live a righteous life. Right, exactly. Great point. Joe, here's the thing. When we're seeing all the discussion about sexual identity, trying to make homosexuality an identity rather than a behavior, even though attractions obviously are involved here, what that does is take hope away from people. And I think the reason that people like you, Christians like you, and some of the other great friends we all have, 
frustrate the activist is because every time you share your testimony, they don't have an argument because they can't say you weren't gay. Right. I mean, that that's not really possible to say that you were never in that lifestyle because it's patently obvious you were. <laughs> yes. You know, so I think. Yeah. I, I mean, we with everybody I know, Janet, who started this kind of work and, you you know, a lot of my friends, Stephen Black and Ann Paul and so many others. Yeah. We never got into this to make trouble for anybody. I was never interested in my testimony making anyone uncomfortable. All I ever wanted to do was say, look, if you struggle with this, as I have struggled with this, there are answers I've found, and I would love to share them with you. That's all I've wanted to do. Amen. But what we found was that too many people were saying, wait a minute, that needs to be silenced. I've decided it's damaging. I've decided it's destructive. And what you got to ask yourself, Janet, is this. If someone really feels confident in their position and in their life, why do they need to silence someone who disagrees with them? That's right. JoeDallas.com. Thanks, Joe. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. More than seven months ago, Pastor Brian Naren from International House of Prayer Ministries in Tennessee was detained in India under false charges. The alleged crime was evading a duty on funds he was carrying for the conference he was supposed to attend. But after a lot of prayer and congressional intervention, he has now returned back to America. And he joins us now to tell us what happened and how God brought him home with the help of a lot of wonderful other people. Pastor Naren, welcome home and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Sure. Now, tell people a little bit about your ministry. I know you run this nonprofit ministry called Asian Children's Education Fellowship and that you've worked for quite a while in places like India and Nepal. But talk a little bit, if you would, about your trip to India, what you were there for, and why this all kind of unfolded the way it did. For the last 17 years, I've been doing a project with uh, children where we, we actually teach teachers to teach children in Nepal. And I uh, have not done that project in India. This year, I was going to meet a friend who was having a 25-year anniversary uh, at his church who works with children in India, and then from there across the border to Nepal to continue doing the work that we do there. When we arrived in Delhi, there was me and two other Americans. We had $40,000. Uh, we declared the money. We went through security. Uh, four different people, including a customs man, looked at the money, said, we were fine. You can go to Bagdogger, the next airport. When we arrived at the next airport in Bagdogra, they met us at the runway, or the as soon as we got off the plane, and uh, we were taken into custody. And somebody from Delhi Airport had sent an email ahead to the customs department there and told them to take whatever was necessary action. So after eight hours of uh, grueling interrogation, they decided to put all the money from three of us uh, together, put it all in my name and take me to prison. And I went to prison for six days, uh, then made bail and stayed in Siligray for another seven months trying to come home. Terrible. It's terrible. And you, un- I understand you were never even informed about this duty, right? And didn't even have the minimum amount that would have made the amount of money you were carrying a crime. Even if I had 40000 it would have been a crime. 
I could have, I could have carried seventy thousand dollars by myself and not had to do anything other than pay a two percent duty. Expected to do that, you know. That was the reason for declaring it to the security people in customs in Delhi. But they did not ever talk about duty. They didn't ask me to pay a duty. They didn't give me a document. They had two questions: Are you a Christian? And will you meet with Christians when you get to Northeast India? Oh wow! Of course, the answer was both. Was yes. Right, right. Do you believe that that was the real reason behind your detention and then your subsequent seven months of turmoil and jail and all the other things that you went through? Yeah, absolutely it was. Uh, 45 days after I was arrested in conversations with the customs officials there in Calcutta, uh, one of those guys told me, he said, we're working on charges against you for religious conversion. And they were hoping to do that. He said, you're going, we have been instructed to uh, send you to prison. You will serve three to five years, maybe seven in prison. And we're going to build a case. It's going to take us a while, but we're going to build a case and send you to prison because we've been instructed to by central government in Delhi, including Prime Minister Modi, to crush all American Christians coming to India bringing funds to help Christians. Oh, my. that That's terrifying. And and all the things that you went through, I know you endured, what, a travel ban. You had your passport seized. As you mentioned, you spent time in jail. How, how did you deal with all of this? You know, certainly there were lots of people back home who were working on your behalf and praying for you. But just as a pastor, as a Christian, how were you able to cope with this? How did the Lord help you through it all? Hey. I've been going for years. I knew that I was going to an area that was uh, difficult. I did not realize it was hostile as it was, but I didn't go blindly. Uh, I knew what God had asked me to do, and God had asked me a very simple thing I've been doing for 17 years. I go twice a year. The Lord says, buy a ticket, go where I tell you, I'll provide you with money, and, and when you get there, you'll know what to do. So I was very clear that I was on a mission from God. I mean, I was going to Nepal again. God had provided the money through our nonprofit. And uh, I really believed in all of that, and I, that was my strength. Of course, 100,000 people praying for me really made that even better. Right. But I, I, I was afraid. I, I mean, I'm no Superman. When they tell you they're going to send you to prison for three to five years, uh, it's scary. It's spooky. But the worst part of all of it, though, is the pain and suffering I put my family through. Right. Well, did you ever doubt at any point that you would be able to return home? How bad did it get in terms of your mindset? Uh, in the first couple of months, it was very d- difficult to imagine coming home in less than a prison term. Yeah. Uh, after the first of the year, things began to change. Uh, I, the longer that I was using for the first two months, I uh, was working with the government against me instead of for me. Oh. I, I switched to a, a gentleman out of Delhi who was a Supreme Court lawyer. Uh, he took my case just because it was corrupt. He said, I don't like you. I don't know you. I don't care nothing about you. He said, what they're doing to you is against the Indian Constitution. It's against Indian law. Indian law. They're breaking every law in the book to prosecute you for something you didn't do. You have not broken any laws. You have not done anything wrong. And he took my case, and, and he began, with the help of the uh, State Department, put together the, the eventual package and idea that they got me home. Right. Uh, I, I did not just come home gently and easily, though. No, it we doesn't made, sound like we, it. We made five attempts Goodness. At, at being released. Um, in the end, they extorted me out of the 40000 give it to us and sign a letter saying you want to give it to us or you'll never go home. And then they added another $6,000 of fines on top of that, which is simply blackmail. Yeah. Pay it or you'll be here forever. Oh my. And they set my next court hearing for September the 30th. 
That's incredible. Well, and you had congressional support, as you mentioned, the State Department, and you had people back here praying for you for sure. But you had intervention from members of Congress, right? They wrote a letter on your behalf. I did. The first two months I was on my own. Uh, They did the civil part of it, and I paid a fine, and then they switched it to criminal. Once they switched it to criminal, uh, some senators and congressmen got involved. President Trump eventually got involved. Um, The the, uh, American ambassador, Kenneth Jester, eventually made the the real deal. Uh, The the American Center for Law and Justice, Stacey Howell, took our case the very first week. She is the one that actually got me out on bail. Wow. And uh, then because the State Department did nothing for the first two months, they have an agreement with India. And this is something people don't know when they travel. Your American citizenship means nothing after you leave the United States. Yeah. Boy, the agreement with India is, is that if you're arrested in India, the State Department will make will do nothing to help you until you are found innocent or guilty by the Indian government. Oh, man, that's that's scary, but it's good to know. So, you know, we see things like the Open Doors World Watch List. I know in talking about this this year, we've seen India rise to, I think, about number 10 on that list as far as yeah. Christian persecution and because of all the political changes and some of the Hindu nationalism and things like that. But what is your assessment now on Christians going over there to do ministry? Clearly, Christians have to go wherever the Lord sends them, regardless of the danger. But does this change anything for you, your ministry, or your advice to other Christians or missionaries who might seek to go to India right now? Unless the God call, unless God speaks to you by middle name and tells you to go to India, you should not go. Yeah. You, you just simply should not go. There's no protection if you're arrested. If you're arrested in Delhi, India today, you can be arrested by traffic policemen. He can hold you in prison for one year before he gives you a hearing or, or opportunity to make bail. He can put you in prison and hold you for one year. That's scary. I, has there been any pressure put on India in light of your case from the State Department that you guys better knock it off and stop persecuting Christians who come from the United States? Has there been any sort of attempt to change that from our own government? There is some dialogue going on. I'm not familiar with exactly what it would be because I've uh, I've tried to be very gentle and kind uh, until the other day. Once I landed back in the United States, I'll tell everybody the truth that I know. I mean, I don't know everything that's going on, but I do know certainly that every Indian Christian in the nation are afraid for their life. When President Trump was there in February, there was a lot of talk about the um, Muslim massacre that happened while he was there that killed 55 Muslims in Delhi. The story that never made the news is that there was 200 Christians killed in the same weekend. And there was Christians, some of who I know, pastors, who were taken out of their house, tied to tree in the front yard, along with their wives. And them and their wives were both beaten bloody. Oh, my goodness. Well, In a few I, cases, they burnt their house. Well, this is important. I'm so glad that you're back, Pastor Brian Nairn. Welcome home again. God bless you. And I'm so glad that the Lord answered everybody's prayers. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. We'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom 
comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child. Perhaps the dad's gone. Perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort. But what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Once again, I have to give kudos to all of those largely unknown pastors and churches across America who were very early on the ones to stand up and say, we still have freedom of religion. We still have freedom of religion. Yes, we understand there's a coronavirus that has come to us from China. We understand many people have become sick and many people have died from this virus, but it is still a largely survivable virus. It has an overwhelming survival rate. And as time has gone along, we've learned a lot more about all this. Well, I want to bring you up to speed on what's going on in California, because part of the kudos that I am offering here to churches and to pastors lands squarely in the laps of a lot of these great unknown pastors in California, largely. And I say the reason I'm saying that is because I this is another subject that I'll get to at some point this week. But I have been really impressed with the way that we have seen a lot of these smaller church pastors, and some of them are a little bit bigger, coming together and saying, we're going to stand up for our right to peaceably assemble and to have freedom of religion, not just be locked down in our homes with Zoom on our computers, but we have the right to get together and worship the Lord. You don't have a right, governor, to shut us down indefinitely because you have determined under your emergency powers that churches just aren't as important as Walmart. So we've been through a lot of this. Let me bring you up to speed, though, on what's going on. I had interviewed Pastor Jim Franklin not too long ago, who's part of this big effort of California pastors um, who are really standing up against what Governor Gavin Newsom has been putting into place for all those churches saying you can't reopen. There have been some lawsuits already. And they have said, as you heard on the show just recently, we will reopen on May 31st. I think it's something like 1,200 pastors in California are saying that we will reopen May 31st. This was undergirded by the fact that you had Attorney General Bill Barr write this letter. He warned in a letter to Governor Newsom that California has to move fast 
disaster to allow churches to reopen or it will face constitutional consequences. And of course, on Friday, the president of the United States declared churches essential and put more pressure on governors to say, let churches reopen. And this is all important. But let me tell you something, because something came up on Twitter about this just recently over the weekend. Somebody was saying, well, it wasn't really the pastors. It was the letter from Attorney General Bill Barr. And it was. But let me just emphasize this. Had it not been for Christians' willingness to press the point and have a legal fight over it, it would not have put the requisite political pressure on these politicians to back us up. That's why it's so important for Christians to get out in front and to say we have rights, just like Paul asserted in Acts 22. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. Look it up. This is important because there are Christians right now who are very confused over the point of whether or not a Christian should ever assert any sort of constitutional right. We should give up our rights. We're Christians. Well, Paul asserted his rights as a Roman citizen. It's ridiculous. So another day I'll get into that a little bit more. But here's what has happened in the interim. You had a Ninth Circuit Court decision that came down upholding the California ban on in-person church services. This was the and it was crazy what they what they found here. There was a split ruling. This is from the Washington Times, finding that government's emergency powers override what in normal times would be fundamental constitutional rights. Can you explain to me one single solitary reason why the Constitution should be suspended over a virus that overwhelmingly is survivable? This isn't the bubonic plague. Again, how many times do I have to say this? But here's what's interesting. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the South Bay United Pentecostal Church in San Diego cannot reopen immediately. In this case, they said, constitutional standards that would normally govern our review of a free exercise claim should not be applied. This is from the two judges in the majority. We're, quote, we're dealing here with a highly contagious and often fatal disease for which there presently is no known cure. In the words of Justice Robert Jackson, if a court does not temper its doctrinaire logic with a little practical wisdom, it will convert the constitutional Bill of Rights into a suicide pact. I'm sorry, most of the people getting COVID are recovering. How is this a suicide pact? And I'm not trying to denigrate the pain of families who have lost loved ones. Not at all. But this is not something, they're, they're taking it to this insane level. And this was interesting because Judge Daniel Collins forcefully dissented. This is from National Review. This is the same guy in this ruling uh, with South Bay United Pentecostal Church v. Newsom. Collins rejected California's extraordinary claim that the current emergency gives the governor the power to restrict any and all constitutional rights as long as he has acted in good faith and has some factual basis for his edicts. The Supreme Court's 1905 ruling in Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which was used as some kind of precedent here, does not, according to Judge Collins, support the view that an emergency displaces normal constitutional standards. Rather, Jacobson provides that an emergency may justify temporary constraints within those standards. Therefore, the church's challenge must be evaluated under the traditional framework that governs free exercise claims. And that's a really important thing because now you have an announcement from the church that they are appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court over this lockdown. And 
praise God for them. The battle over the impact of this lockdown on the way that we exercise our freedom of religion now has reached the Supreme Court via Politico as this church and its pastor made an emergency appeal for relief from executive orders issued by Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, it should be noted that yesterday, Gavin Newsom did issue new orders, although they are better than they were. There are still problems with it. And the the lawyer for this church has said, uh, you know, we still have problems with it. The governor, for example, via the San Jose Mercury News, under these new guidelines announced, places of worship can reopen and political protests can be held pending approval from their county public health officials. There might be a problem there on the condition that they limit attendance to 25% of the building or area's capacity or a maximum of 100 attendees, whichever is lower. So if you have a church of 1,000, you can only have 100 people there. Now, how is this fair? Because you're going to have businesses allowed to have 50% capacity. I believe restaurants can have 50% capacity. So you still have a problem here. You're still not allowing churches to have the same freedom as other sorts of entities. And Again, this is going to come up when you go to the Supreme Court, and I am hoping and praying that the Supreme Court will actually stick with the Constitution as written and vindicate this church, as they should, as they should. Because when you have justices in the Ninth Circuit saying, well, you know, it's going to be a suicide pact if we don't intervene here, I still have a question about why, in invoking emergency powers, you have a governor able to not indefinitely lock down, because he's not indefinitely locking anybody down, but when you have broad emergency powers in the wrong hands, that can become very scary. And I was looking up the statutes in California concerning concerning isolation and quarantine, and it was like the Idaho statute that I had cited a couple of years, a couple of weeks back, I should say, where you do have the right, the state does have the right to quarantine and isolate, but it has to do with people who truly are sick with a deadly and very contagious disease. That's a very important thing for the state to be able to do. And on the federal level, the CDC has invoked its powers and there is a travel ban from China and those sorts of things are appropriate. And there also is this right to isolate if somebody has been exposed to a deadly infectious disease. That I also understand, but I don't see... And I haven't seen anybody address and really answer this question, how it is that with the quarantine and isolation laws that are on the books, presumably in every state, a governor can unilaterally say everybody has to stay locked down and I'll tell you when you can go out and I'll tell you how many people you can have in your building. And this all falls under the guise of public health. If you are to isolate people, wouldn't you need to verify individually that every single person you're isolating has been explicitly exposed to a deadly contagious disease? How in the world do you do that? You wouldn't even know that by testing. Testing doesn't solve that because you could be exposed and still not have any symptoms and you could be exposed and not have any antibodies. You could be exposed to flu. When your kids have the flu, doesn't mean that you'll get it. So that doesn't solve the problem. Do you see what I'm talking about here? We have seen all sorts of pushing of the limits of emergency powers. And now you see with this decision at the Ninth Circuit, this insanity of saying that the state can trample on your constitutional rights because otherwise the Bill of Rights can be a suicide pact all for a virus that has not a very big mortality rate. So all of this is important. 
And again, we have a number of Christians and Christian leaders who are trying to make the case that, oh, we just need to love our neighbors. You know, you you should love your neighbor. I, I'm all in favor of loving your neighbor. I'm not against that at all. But while you're loving your neighbor, you have to love God as well. And you have to look at what the word of God says about don't forsake the assembling together with one another. That is important. And that is a command from the Lord. And that is in the Bible. And that doesn't go away just because you're scared. And you shouldn't be scared. You should be prudent. You should be wise. But you shouldn't be scared. And if you're scared of this, what happens if we ever do get a bubonic plague for crying out loud? I mean, it's going to be carrying on steroids everywhere you look. We just have to not acquiesce and give up our brains and our critical thinking skills just because we're worried about getting sick. That's when it all can fall apart. So we'll keep you posted. But God bless those churches in California. Pray for them. That's going to do it for me. We'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today. 